welcome back to the Whitehawks Periodical Podcast. It's the new season, and that means it's time for something that's become a bit of a tradition. Interviewing Greg Wyshynski at the start of the season. I like this tradition. How you doing, Wish? <laughs> doing great, thanks. It's been a couple of years since we've uh, started doing this. I, I'm really enjoying having you on again, and I have to start this talk about the new season by asking you, since you spent some time in beautiful Sunrise, Florida the last year for multiple NHL events, I have to ask an important question. Did you get your car lost at the Sawgrass Mills parking lot like all of us once and forever will do? <laughs> so that's the mall next to the arena, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, so it wasn't so much the car being lost there as me being lost there because we stayed in the hotel that's kind of like over on the other side of the mall and uh, my friend Kristen Shelton, who works at ESPN, said, you can get to the arena just by walking through the mall. And um, and that was true uh, in, on some days when I could figure out how to navigate the mall and not true necessarily on other days when the mall is closed, when you get out of the game and then you have to, you know, figure out how to get around that monstrosity back to your hotel room. And on a couple of occasions, it meant uh, walking a great distance uh, from the arena around the, ho- around the, the mall to my hotel room after uh, – this, uh, after not navigating correctly. I think everybody's been lost in that mall at some point, whether it be in the parking lot or whether it be in the actual mall itself. I don't know how it's possible you can know your way there unless you go there every day, and I hope nobody does that. <laughs> but it's clutch. it was clutch, though, man. Like, if you need a little snackaroo after practice, you can grab yourself a, you know, a little Sbarro action, you get yourself a little Shake Shack action, did that a couple times. So it was, it was good to have... Look, there's a lot of places in this league where... You get out of practice, and and there's nothing within a reasonable distance of uh, of, of that place to get a good a good uh, lunch. So I was uh, I was I was genuinely uh, happy with the location. Is that the first time in human history somebody's like, I'm happy to see a Sabaro? <laughs> well, you know, I had one day where I needed I needed greasy uh, a greasy pepperoni slice, and uh, and Sabaro, you know, listen, I'm a New Yorker. I'm obviously a snob about it and uh and love all the uh, michael scott memes from the office with him talking about sabaro in new york city but that being said like if you're on the road and you've got a hankering and you're in a place that doesn't necessarily do a new york slice all that well it it could be an oasis so i, I didn't mind it I, I would think the panther should take care of getting a decent new york slice somewhere near the arena in broward county florida quite well but you know we can't do everything um regardless of that on a serious note, now that you've spent a lot of time there, what did you think? Because not many NHL media spend a lot of time there unless required to. I think more would like to. But what did you think now that you saw that that place in a way that nobody had seen it before? Yeah, I mean, it was it was hopping, and it was cool to see, you know, what what a, a maximization of of Panther fan culture looks like. I mean, I don't think it's any secret that they still want to add uh, more followers to the cult than they currently have. But, you know, it was clearly a meaningful run to a lot of people. Um, it was, uh, you know, you walk around and see some ill-fitting jerseys from back in the day with names you've forgotten about. And then you also see a lot of people wearing, you know, Barkov jerseys and current stuff. And, you know, I feel like the moment they acquired Mac Chuck, they, they knew what they were doing, which was to not only get a player that could be a 100-point scorer for them and, and be their offensive engine, but, but also someone who is going to be a tone setter for the organization and someone who could be, you know, the face of the team and someone who could, you know, attract people just by virtue of um, the way he acts on and off the ice and, and his play. So, you know, I, I felt like you had a lot of 
people coming back to the fold to celebrate a, a long-awaited uh, return to a playoff run. And then you had some folks that have gravitated to the, to the team just because they love the way it plays. I think what stood out to me the most was how it's such a memorable run because of how many times they won in crazy moments. Like, if you're having a dominant run, like, that's cool, obviously, but those tentpole moments you have that make you a fan, sometimes you don't get those in a steamroller kind of run. In this case, the Panthers had just moment after moment after moment, you know, winning two series in overtime and a third in quasi-overtime pretty much, like, how could you not have like six moments that will define you as a fan if this captured you for the rest of your life and those kind of moments get people to stick? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've always said that, you know, the challenge in a lot of these markets for teams, uh, you know, South Florida being one of them, Columbus being another one is, you know, this inability to really live and die with your team in the playoffs. Cause that's really where your fandom is cemented. And so, you know, the fact that the, the, Panthers went on the run that they did and and had it end the way it did unfortunately with uh with their top player being too injured to play um I, I think it's going to leave people pretty hungry uh for a, a, a an encore performance on the ice we criticized and I mean we as and me and my co-hosts and a lot of us who follow this team were skeptical of Paul Maurice and what he was selling and when he said this is what he wanted to do most of us were just hoping that he could prove it because during most of the regular season, we didn't see it. And it looked for most of the year, like they weren't even going to get a chance, but then yeah. he proved it. And the way he talked about it during the playoffs was kind of philosophical in a way. And unlike, I think how a lot of coaches speak during the playoffs about the run and what it meant and what it meant for him. What did you take away from interacting with Paul Maurice during that and seeing him in a coach in a different light because of how it ended in Winnipeg and how his career has played out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that he was the right coach for that group uh, in, in hindsight. I mean, you know, he, he certainly had a handle on, on what to do with the roster uh, during the playoffs. Um, he certainly had the right temperament for this playoff run. And, and, you know, it was really choppy. I mean, there was some really emotional highs and lows, uh, in, in that run and I think that he did a good job managing that and, and in some cases was just like the guy who talked to the media for 25 minutes <laughs> and, and, and sometimes you, you just need that so um, I, I would agree that he did a better job down there than, than I anticipated um, I, I didn't quite understand uh, why they decided to bring him in but it wound up being a, a pretty smart move it's amazing to think about how Bill Zito's entire history as GM is pretty large gambles that you'd say, what, more than two-thirds of them have paid off? And in a league culture that's not one that wants to take gambles, he, he's been pretty successful in most of them, and that allows you to have a, a pretty big hit rate for a team that never had a big hit rate. And it still impresses me that he was able to overcome the gambles that backfired pretty spectacularly in a way that allowed them to become an eight seed that made a cup final run. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think he gets part of that from learning under Jarmo Kekalainen in Columbus, who's also a guy that knows his way around a bold move. Some that work, some that very much don't. (laughs) Um, But, but again, like I I think in, in Bill's case, you know, he, he, his hits and miss ratio has been good. 
he's made some mistakes. I mean, you're thinking back to the uh, Ben Schrott trade, for example, I still think that was a disaster. Um, but a lot of the other moves that he's made have, have certainly paid off. And, um, you know, bringing in players like Sam Bennett and, and Reinhardt and, and, and people like that, you know, betting on Montour the way he did, like most of those, those moves have paid off and, and obviously paid off spectacularly last season. So about this season, I don't remember whether it was you or Arda that had them third in the Atlantic or one of you had them second on the drop, which it's great to see that that's a podcast now, by the way. Uh, Thank who, you. Who, who had that where? Uh, I think I think he might have had them second, and then I had them third. I, I definitely had them in the top three because famously I had Tampa falling out of the top four. Um, but I may have had the Panthers. I can't remember if I had the Panthers second or third, but I definitely did not have them first. I know that. Well, neither do I. But I think it's interesting to evaluate this division because for me, and I've talked about this a lot on this show, it's that I thought they improved their floor when I don't really think that improving their regular season ceiling, we're not talking playoffs, just regular season here, you don't need to really be a great, regular, an incredible, you know, juggernaut regular season team anymore. It, in many ways, the Panthers have kind of evolved into that lightning role where they now know that their bread's not buttered by being a regular season juggernaut. They understand that's not the real goal here. And if you can get in, it doesn't matter where you get in, your playoff track record could put the fear of God into an opponent, and that's all you need. And raising their floor in a division where a lot of teams are trying to, you know, not just raise their floors, but raise their ceilings, I think is why I agree with you. I, I don't think there's going to, even with the injuries, that there's going to be a lot of trouble getting in. Certainly, I think there will be less trouble than last year. Yeah, um, I- I mean, I, I think that's probably accurate. Um, but, you know, the, uh, again, the, the thing about the Panthers that I find interesting is that uh, they do seem, and they did seem like this last year, tailor-made for, for playoff runs. I mean, just the way that they're built. And, um, you know, it, I think that probably portends good things if they could get back. <laughs> um, I don't think they necessarily have to be regular season world beaters at all. And I think the reason why I don't think that last season was quite emblematic of who they were was not just because the roster wasn't particularly good. I mean, I don't know how they were able to manage Mark Stahl the way they did. I, that is a miracle. I, I don't understand that and probably never <laughs> will. I mean, how like he was a top four defenseman on a team that made the Stanley Cup final. Like, it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, I mean, you know, they, they got the performances they needed out of him, I suppose. He, he was a liability a lot of the time in the playoffs, but obviously no longer a concern for them. Thank the Lord for that on multiple fronts, which I will have to ask about in a little bit. But when it comes to this team now, I look at them and I think they now have the ability to play a little bit more within themselves and not push as much because I also have to remind everyone that last year, the Panthers were like 30th in the league in goal scored below expected. They were phenomenally unlucky during the regular season. They were still one of the yeah. best teams in terms of expected goals and generating shots and shots in key areas. And for a lot of the season, it just wouldn't go in for whatever reason. And if you would expect mild regression this year, they don't have to be great in overperformance. They would just have to be average. Like that's worth a couple wins and a couple wins probably gets them in. 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, like, like you said, they're they're a good team. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say. I think the I challenge, like though, is that there are a lot of other good times. teams in the Atlantic. They don't have the safety net they had, you know, the last couple of years where you knew who the four were before you even had to drop a puck. They, yeah, I mean, sure. But, I mean, like, they're still better than the three behind them, I think, um, as provided they don't fall off a cliff when they're missing – Ekblad and, and Montour early on, and provided the goaltending is still as good as it is, I still think they're better than Ottawa, Buffalo, and, and Detroit. It's Buffalo's the team that you think is the closest to actually making the leap. I think. I think most no, people. No, Ottawa are... actually. I, I thought it's Ottawa actually. Like you I really think, think, I think it's Buffalo. Okay. Probably... Well, I think Buffalo is like maybe a year away. Like unless unless Devin Levi is is you know going to win the Calder by virtue of of being as as outstanding as he was in a very short period of time last year like i i think i think you know that he's 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 a true rookie uh with you know making the leap from college behind a team that can't defend <laughs> you know like like they just are, they're not interested in it like one of the reasons why uh, tage thompson is so good is because he just kind of does one thing well and, and doesn't necessarily have to take care of the other end of the ice so if he can if he can play well behind that i mean good on them. They, they might be a playoff team, but I, I, I think at the end of the day, I, I like, I like Ottawa a little bit better um, provided they can get a little bit of health uh, and good luck in that area. You know, their, their goaltending is really good and they have a couple of really good defensemen. And, uh, and sometimes you just need one line to be able to power you. And, and that line of, of Brady Kachuk and Stutzla and, and Drew, I think is that kind of line. So they're they're the one I, I think could make the leap this year with the notion that Buffalo is probably still a year away. But it, I mean, it, again, it wouldn't shock me if Buffalo jumped up. It's just they're going to need a little bit of of good of good luck and, and great goaltending. I think the Sabers. The reason why I would have them is because they are so overwhelming in that one area, even if they might be deficient in others. That sometimes being overwhelmingly good at one thing might be enough, where the other teams have flaws. Maybe that's a flawed analysis, but I think the cool factor of the Sabres getting in is, you know, is kind of what I'm hoping for. That's no offense to Ottawa. Like, I'm happy for all of them to have the stability that they deserve, but the Sabres are cool, and (laughs) they just are. Like, they're fun to watch. The Sabres are the Sabres are cool because the the Sabres fan base is is cool. Like, it's exciting to think about how. you know, if, if this team contends, what that market could look like. Like, we've seen the mania surrounding the Bills, for example. and Like, it could be super fun if uh, if, if they can contend. Um, and they, I think they're, like, the next one to go along with, like, Chicago and, and Boston, uh, the next market that was dormant, and then all of a sudden they're a contender, and then you see, like, the ratings go crazy and the, 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 the crowd showing up to watch the games outside the arena. Like, it's, it's, it's going to be sick. I absolutely can't wait to see somebody jump through a flaming table at a Sabres tailgate. <laughs> it's possible, right? <laughs> they, they should do it. I mean, the, the the Bills fans in London at a stadium that I normally see on Saturday afternoons and mornings look pretty nuts. They they made that stadium sound pretty nuts. It was The result was correct, though. The Jaguars beat them, and that was very good. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Devils, who I, I'm not saying this to jinx them. I would never do that. I think they can win the President's Trophy. Like, they are that good. And there are a number of people picking them to make the cup final. I know you're not one of them. But 
this is this Devils team. I think it's scary how long their winning window is open. And from you as a perspective of covering them, but also still rooting for them after this decade of almost nothing, does it does it kind of shock you about how they went from zero to a hundred as quick as they did, and now they are that team for a lot of people? It it does only only because like you know we're only a couple of years away from them not being able to really figure out how they needed to play under Lindy Ruff and. And then everybody assumed that Ruff was going to get fired and like the next guy would figure it out. And then last season, they just kind of put it all together. You know, they, they found a way to play that up-tempo, super creative offensive hockey while also taking care of their, their business on the defensive end. And I, I think the overwhelming thing is like, if, if they're really a favorite to win the cup, like if people really think they could win the cup this year, then, you know, how many more do they win? <laughs> like the, the, the runway is, is so long for this team. I mean, this is Luke Hughes's rookie year. Simone Nemesh, who's going to be an incredible defenseman in this league, hasn't even played yet. Like, Jack Hughes is, what, like 22? Um, you know, they've got all these guys signed long-term. Like, it, it's the overwhelming part is, you know, in the past, when the Devils would win, it'd be like kind of a surprise. You know, like 95, yeah, they were on the precipice the year before, but, but you never knew if they were going to be able to break through. And then, you know, 2000 was a really, really good team, but no one knew if they could win the cup. And then 2003 was a complete surprise. And then, you know, 2012 when they made it against the Kings was maybe the, the biggest surprise. Uh, even though sure they didn't was play. to me. So, yeah. So I mean, so I mean, like you know, they, they the fact that they could win this season um, and then have all of this in front of them, where it is, it is truly set up for them to be a a cup contender for maybe a decade. Like that's the, that's the overwhelming part as a devil's fan. I just think that, um, you know, this isn't like a, a veteran team uh, trying to squeeze out a cup. Like this is a, a team that is still ripening on the vine that has a, 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 an opportunity to do this a, a couple of times. When is the last time we saw a team with this wide open, a cup window? I guess it's probably, you know, Sid and Ovi in the early days, but like, it doesn't feel like the recent teams have had like this crazy open of a window. It's kind of just come around like Tampa won later than, you know, you would have thought like 2015. You're like, oh, wow. Okay, they're going to be around for a while, but it took them five years to get one. So like it doesn't feel like we've had a team with this long of a window, long of a runway for a little bit of time. But maybe you, you think differently with that. No, I mean, I think Tampa and Colorado probably are both in that conversation. I think in Colorado's case, you know, when, when we started to really kind of say what their window looked like and they, they were coming up short in the playoffs, I mean, McKinnon was still a kid. and McCarr had just arrived and, you know, they, they Rantman was, was still real young. And, and so, like, I feel like their core at, very, at the very least um, was of an age that they could contend for, for several seasons. They could maybe even win the cup again this year. But, like, the Devils, you know, have so many guys that are just so young, whether it's Hughes or Brat or the other Hughes and, you know, Heischer. Like, they're so young in so many places um, that are that are core player places that it's just kind of incredible to think what kind of run they could have in front of them. I think it's also signing the contracts they did right as the cap might be about to go up infinitely is also kind of part of why you see it this way, you know? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, like they, they've, they've done a good job on cap management. I mean, the, the Jack Hughes contract that they signed is going to end up being 
as as uh, impactful as as the Nathan McKinnon uh, contract was for Colorado in the sense of like when he was on that deal that was sort of undervalued, they were able to do so much around him um, under the cap uh, that it made them a Stanley Cup champion. And I think the same thing is going to happen for the for the Devils. Unfortunately, I have to end this conversation with something a little bit more depressing. Uh, I have to ask about the the Pride Tape stuff. You've done reporting on it. Obviously, everyone knows that I care about this deeply. Um, I cannot remember a time in following the league and covering it where I've seen players say, we're going to openly defy what the league wants to do because they (laughs) think the league has screwed up this badly. And even through those players, you know, the media training you get from the Connors, McDavid's of the world, Brad Marchands, all these guys are just reading through the lines. You can tell they are furious with this decision. Uh, Where do you, in terms of covering it, from the perspective of covering it as a news story as opposed to me who's covering it from a the league is attacking who I am. What do you think in just covering this in terms of how big the league has botched this and how much this has become a story when this should not be the story at this moment when we are recording this? Well, I mean, on the players' front, like it is inspiring to hear them talk about the pride tape and how they want to use it and, and in, in defiance of this this policy, but you know, there's two things I'd also like to hear from these guys uh, if they're going to be vocal about it. One is to talk about their union, which signed off on this policy, and and you know their union has to do the thing that they do when there's a suspension hearing and, and protect the guys that uh, injure people as much as they protect you know the players that are injured. And so like I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. The, the union right now, even though Marty Walsh has in the past said he's a huge advocate for the gay community. Um, there's definitely a bit of the NHLPA kind of going along with this policy more so than, you know, like they didn't put out a statement or anything uh, regarding this policy while other organizations were. The other thing, too, is obviously like the crux of the matter, which is that there are teammates on these guys' teams that, based on their belief system, are the reason why the jersey ban went into effect. And, and then, you know, the NHL overreached and decided to ban everything else. So, you know, a little bit more of, of that public discourse could probably go a long way, a long way too. Um, look, if the NHL wants to ban all, if the, okay, let me, let me rephrase this. If the NHL wanted to ban teams from wearing pride jerseys, they, they can do it. Like they can have that policy and, and, you know, it would have been the cleanest thing to do for them because that's the problem. And the problem is not people having to wear hockey fights cancer jerseys or you know latino heritage night jerseys the problem was you had guys that had religious objections and moral objections to wearing a pride jersey so if you had just done that you would have looked horrible and uh and looked completely hypocritical insofar as trying to be diverse as a league and and hockey is everyone but also enacting this kind of ban but it would have been getting to the core of what you consider to be the problem the problem is, is they didn't do that the problem is they decided to go and ban everything so now they look like a, a bunch of jerks for taking money away from other charities and, and, and decreasing the visibility of all of these charities by not having them, you know, on the backs and fronts of players in warmups. And then also creating even more problems for themselves by not allowing the individual freedoms of players to support these causes in ways in which they, they always have on the ice, whether it's wearing a sticker or a ribbon or a jersey. And so, like, these are all unforced errors, and, and the policy is a mess, and it's a mess of their own making, and they can easily get out of this mess by just 
honoring the personal beliefs of players that want to wear, want to use pride tape in the same way that they honored the personal beliefs of players that didn't want to participate in these things. The thing is, for the league, is they never do these policies proactively. Everything's a reaction to a reaction to a reaction. And so you can't come up with a coherent policy in that case. Because this is a reaction to a reaction to a reaction. And also, like, if you're going to talk about, you know, banning the pride jerseys or wearing it, then the league should have realized that this may have come up when the first pride jersey thing started happening and had a talk with teams saying, this is what you need to do when this might happen, if it happens, but they didn't have the foresight to figure it out. And now they're dealing with this. And again, there are gay or bi players on every team in every organization. And why do they matter less than the ones who, you can't protest somebody's existence. This, you can't do that. These people exist. Yeah. You can change your views. Well, you can't change your sexuality. I know that for a fact. Well, well, and then the other issue, obviously, is that, you know, the, the, where this all was born from was the Flyers botching the Proveroff thing as badly as they did, which, again, I, I don't know if people really understand internally how bad that was. Like, oh, it was the, awful. The I, you could tell. It was, I watched it was, teams botch this in other leagues, and it wasn't as bad as this. No, the Flyers situation was was an absolute mess, and it's what set everything in motion. And and uh, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. Their their marketing team and their and their hockey ops team were on completely different pages. A lot of the decisions that have made made behind the scenes since then have been made with that in kind of like the back of their minds. It's it's I don't know. Like if the Flyers had stepped up and, and made the right call on what to do with a player who skips out on on warmups for uh, a political protest, then, you know, maybe this wouldn't have gotten to where it is now. But again, it just does not, I come back to the same thing all, all the time. It doesn't have to be like this. Like it, you, there's absolutely no reason why you can't allow certain players to express their beliefs or, or, you know, support causes. It, they're, they're concerned that if like five guys use pride tape and the rest of the team doesn't, then the rest of the team is going to be demonized. And honestly, like, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's how it works. Like I, I think when, when there's a team mandate to do something and, and one guy decides not to do it, of course that person's going to be demonized because they're, they're, they're doing it for their own reasons. But if it's a voluntary thing, I think that flips the script. I, I think that becomes a situation where people who are, are – I think, I think people will go from looking for players that aren't participating and, and demonizing them to celebrating the players that choose to support these causes. Like I, I think that when you make it voluntary – it, it changes the conversation, and I don't think the NHL quite realizes that. I don't think the NHL knows what it needs to do, because when Luke Prokop came out, I mean, they did a good job, but they were told what they had to do, and to their credit, they did everything they were told to do. Uh, if only they would listen to those people more. Uh, wish we could talk to you more, Wish, but unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, by the way, do you need a Blue Sky invite code? <laughs> Since I can't really plug Twitter, again, can I? I'm 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 on I'm on Blue Sky. I just, I, I, I mostly I'm, you know I'm clinging I'm clinging to Twitter because that's where my sweat equity was was placed for the last 15 years or whatever it's been, and it really depresses me that all that work I did to build an audience is being pissed away by a, a psychotic billionaire. Um, but like I'm I'm on Blue Sky. I don't use it. I, I mostly post the threads in the hopes that that jumps up and becomes a thing. So is Blue Sky where I should be? Is that is uh, that where I need to go? Personally, I mean, I think Threads is a dead zone for brands who want to stick their head in the sand and pretend everything is fine when it's not. Blue Blue Sky <laughs> Blue Sky does have a bit of that, and you know, because you've been on it like I like I was at the time. Like it's got a little that decade ago Twitter feel, little bit. 
I'd say try it yeah. out and see what you and see what you think. Look at it, follow some people. You'll see what your experience is. I I enjoy it for what it is. It's got problems, but I enjoy it. Maybe try it out. Thanks, Wish. Apologies for holding you as long as I did. No, no worries, man. Always great to talk to you, and then we'll do it again next season. Absolutely. As promised, part two of our second Why Hockey season preview podcast is with David Dwork, our friend from the Hockey News. It's good to speak to you again, my friend. How you been? I've been good. It's good to speak to you as well. It, it feels like it's been a while, but it probably hasn't been as long as it feels like. It just, uh, hockey season, the whole time, every, the way that everything's gone down the last year has been a little crazy, at least for us that cover the Panthers. Well, I would say that it simultaneously feels like it happened a million years ago and yesterday. That's how modern yeah, exactly. the modern world feels. Like everything took forever ago, but then also it feels like it just happened. Yeah. Uh, well, did you ignore we the again, Golden right? Knights uh, banner raising ceremony last night? I tried to deliberately ignore it. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I watched it. I enjoyed it. I think that's the kind of thing that you need to embrace for the Panthers. Like, yeah, it stinks that the Golden Knights beat them in the final, obviously, but you know they want to be there. They, you know, I, I think it was cool. I think. Uh, you know, they, they really have done a good job leaning into the whole Vegas thing since the team was, you know, first launched up until now. So I thought it was fun. I uh, I look forward to covering it when it happens for the Panthers. That's kind of how I view these kind of things. Well, I'm interested to see what they do with the Eastern Conference Champions banner, because last year, I think you remember the the home opener, they just put the President's Trophy banner up and it was almost like they were ashamed that they had it. But with this, I don't think they're going to be ashamed that they have this one. They're not going to do a huge ceremony, but I think they're going to acknowledge it more than they did last year in the home opener. Yeah, that's that's what I think as well. I, I There's not going to be like a banner raising ceremony or anything like that, obviously, but I don't think it's just going to be popped up there for you to take a picture of if you remember to. I think they should probably say something about being the Eastern Conference champions. It's a pretty significant achievement, even if they didn't complete the mission. Still a pretty big deal. And the Maple Leafs are in the building. You have to do something, right? <laughs> of course. I mean, it's good work for the schedulers to get at least one of the teams in the building for the home opener. That, that was nice. So as you listen to this, it's going to be Thursday, so it's game day. It's crazy to think about that. What was your big story uh, following training camp that uh, you're most looking forward to covering throughout the first couple weeks of the season? Oh, that's a tough one to pick one story, but I, I really have enjoyed watching, <clears throat> excuse me, watching the young kids uh, just kind of blossom throughout camp, whether it's uh, Mackie Semiskevich or uh, Justin Sordiff. Um, obviously, I don't think there was an expectation that either of them would really make the team, at least from my perspective. It's just uh, you don't see it with the Panthers lately, and I hadn't seen enough of Mackie to really have that kind of an opinion. After watching both of them starting in development camp, through training camp, the preseason, uh, just incredibly consistent, no drop-offs. And uh, it's, it's really cool to see because this is a franchise. Uh, they haven't really had a lot of the younger guys take over. I mean, yeah, yeah Anton Lundell uh, has been like kind of the poster child for that. But Spencer Knight, obviously, up and down a little bit since he was drafted for good reason. Uh, but overall, you know, Grigory Denisenko didn't really work out. Uh, Alexi Heponiemi took a contract playing overseas this year. So not a ton in, in terms of the Panthers' prospect pool. So it's really cool to see not one, but two rookies starting the season with the team. Uh, they both look great during training camp. And I'm just excited to see however it may play out for them. Obviously, 
with Mackey, uh, I think there's an expectation that he's going to be with the team a bit longer. Uh, but again, anything could change in the next few days. Uh, but just overall, just really excited to see that play out. Well, it's important because as we talked about on the show recently, and I want to write about it at some point, although other NHL topics might derail me from writing the piece I wanted to write. Thank you very much, Mr. Batman, and your pride tape nonsense. Uh, I was going to talk about how the Panthers are struggling to get players from the AHL to the NHL. Like when you get Mackey, who played very briefly in the AHL, but it's not really a long stint, and Anton Lundell and some of these other guys, they kind of skipped the AHL. So it's interesting to see that sort of has played a lot more in the AHL. So it's interesting to see how these guys comport themselves in the NHL for a team that has big expectations. I mean, not gigantic regular season expectations, but big enough ones. And they're going to play key roles, you would figure. At least Mackey is. You get to play with Lundell and Reinhardt, we presume that's going to be the line. So that's a big responsibility for him. And he's such an important player because they're going to need young players on cheap contracts because even when the cap goes up, they're going to be right up against it no matter what. Yeah, the homegrown talent is going to be a big uh, key for the Panthers to sustain the success and the strong roster that they've got. Just as you said, prices are going to go up. And the young guys that they're not paying a lot of money now, the Carter Verhage's, Aaron Ekblad is going to get a raise. Gus Forsling, if they can, you know, depending on what they do with Forsling and Montour. Um, but there's money that's going to need to be spent. So having these homegrown guys in the cheap, whether it's an ELC or a bridge deal, is going to be big for the Panthers. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the pipeline from the AHL, it's, it's nice to see some things going, going upwards, right? Because obviously the Panthers have been able to stash some guys there and, uh, the checkers, you know, uh, they've had a good team the last few years. Shorty Kinnear does a good job, uh, with that group down there. They were a playoff team made it to the second round last year. And I know there's some more aspirations this year. Uh, but that synergy between the two, two teams is something, Matt, that I've actually tried to pay a lot of attention to over the last couple of years, just because it's, it's really crucial, not just to the prospects, but to guys like Alex Lyon last year, Zach Dalpe, guys who come can are asked to come at random times, whether it's, you know, late in the season or during a playoff run and not just pop in, but perform and perform well. Um, so yeah, it, it's something that should be keep, kept an eye on, um, but good for Florida on uh, growing some of that talent this time around. They need it. They need it more than ever now. And Spencer Knight's going to be key because he will play in the NHL at some point this season. Although it's good that he's going to spend the early part in Charlotte. He needs to get as many games as possible. I think the story for me, well, it's going to be the story until at least one of Ekblon and Montour comes back is what on earth does the defense look like? I think we kind of have an idea of what they're going to try to run out with the pairings. But since you were watching more preseason action than I could, what was the takeaway for you in watching those guys play? And where do you think we're heading with this? Because it seems very likely that the earliest plausible time that either of them could return is Thanksgiving. And even that might be too early. Yeah. I, well, that's kind of why they, they built up the, the D pool the way they did. I, if I'm not mistaken, five of the seven guys that made the opening night roster are new. Um, and, and that's, you know, just kind of a result of what's going on. I think uh, in terms of your question about the timetable, we've heard kind of the earliest, as you said, would be November. It's hard to gauge just because they're both recovering from upper body injuries, right? So we're seeing them practice. We're seeing them look like they're just fine, you know, what, what, doing the work on what Paul Maurice calls the IR skate. Um, but I think uh, with both of them, there's no real sense of rushing anything. And there doesn't really need to be. Uh, if they come back in November, if they come back in December, I've been kind of just banking on them missing between 20 and 30 games. If it's a lesser number, that's great. 
Um, but in terms of the blue line, I think they're going to be okay just because, uh, first of all, in terms of excitement from training camp, I thought Oliver Ekman Larson looked great from day one throughout. Uh, he had a bit of a you know rough go in Vancouver. He broke his foot twice and never really had a chance to get himself to what he's used to in terms of ramping up for a season uh, and the work that you know all NHL players will do during the summer. He never had a chance to get himself ready for either season one or season two in Vancouver, but he looks like he's just fine. Like nothing has jumped out at me negative watching OEL. So I'm thinking that uh, Florida may have gotten, you know, yet another nice little pick up there at a good time. Um, Mike Riley, another guy who just looks very solid on the blue line. They actually had him running a power play uh, in practice. Nice to see him moving the puck. Uh, Nico, Nico Mikola is huge, moves very well. Uh, Josh Mahura, I like him a lot just because incredibly durable. I feel like I'm just kind of going down the list in my head, Matt, <laughs> to answer your question. But no, I'm, I'm really not as worried as you would think you would be missing guys like Montour and Ekblad just because Zito did a great job building what I think is going to be a solid defensive core. They're not going to be called upon to maybe add a whole lot in the offensive category just because Florida's got such deep forwards. I don't think they're going to be asked to do much more than their typical job in the systems. What will be interesting to keep an eye on, at least from my perspective, is just how it works on the special teams. OEL is going to get a first crack at power play one. Uh, curious to see if they do one or two defensemen on power play two. I think it depends on when the unit is put on the ice. Uh, just meaning if it's the end of the penalty, if there's 20 seconds left in the power play, they're not going to put one defenseman out when they're going to be the same guys that are out there facing five on five. But uh, whether it's Forsling or some combination of Forsling and Riley, uh, they should be okay. I, I think they're going to be able to keep their heads above water until uh, the big guys get back. And, and then they're just going to have perhaps an embarrassment of riches at D. And if it goes as, you know, the way that they're hoping it goes, uh, those guys will be coveted and they'll be able to move them and, you know, just kind of build the team in other ways. So, you know, it's, I, I think that it could be a lot worse considering they're missing those two guys that they're in pretty decent shape, uh, notwithstanding uh, those guys being out of the lineup. What's fascinating to me, and Tommy brought it up on our earlier show, was that Paul Maurice last year was really a stickler for handedness. And I guess that that also goes for Sylvain Lefebvre, who was a stickler for handedness, uh, because it was lefty-righty, lefty-righty all year, pretty much, other than, I guess, Mahura, who could do both. But now, technically, you've got seven left-hand shot defensemen on the roster opening night. Now, Kulikov and, and Mahura can play the right, but they're going to put OEL, it looks like, on the right to start. That's a fascinating dynamic for a coach last year who seemed very much a stickler for handedness. And he was like, I think I saw a chart. I couldn't remember. It might've been Prashant the air. If I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry. In terms of how teams deployed defensemen in terms of handedness and the Panthers were the most orthodox or one of the most orthodox teams in the league. So that's something I think I want to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting. I think that's part of why they've got the veteran OEL kind of flipped to his offside. I think it played in a lot more to do with uh, pushing up the ice in terms of defensive capabilities, uh, just because they had that flexibility last year. Now I think it's more of a, you know, kind of making it work with what they have, but yeah, I, I think other than OEL, yeah, I don't know, Matt, I, I'm kind of playing it out in my head as I'm talking to you about it. I hadn't thought about the whole lefty righty thing throughout camp, just because as you said, everybody's kind of on the same playing level here. Um, yeah, that, you know what? I kind of want to ask Paul Maurice about that when they get back from the road now, just to kind of get a little insight into if he thinks it will be interesting. Because I don't have that answer for you. And I think that's kind of where I'm going with this. Like, I'm searching for an answer that I do not have. So now I'm curious to learn. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it'll be something to watch when, uh, when the game start. I, I just don't think just because it hasn't been any apparent issues to this point, this season, you know, through camp in the preseason, they should be okay. And it has certainly hasn't come up, but uh, yeah, TBD next time we chat, you're going to have to follow up, follow up with me on this one. I'll follow up because I think last year we didn't see the defense pairs change unless someone was hurt. Like they no, had, it was Ekblad, Forsling, Stahl, Montour, Mahura, Gudis, and that was it. It never changed. And yeah. this year, because of injuries, it has to change. But also when you have the handedness situation, the way that it played out, you're now wondering how that's going to be worked in terms of deployment. Because I, Again, I didn't watch any of the preseason, so I don't know how it's going to look. And you're going to look and see it tonight and throughout the early going of the season. But it's just a fascinating dynamic for a team last year that was very, very strict with its defense pairings and almost nothing changed. And now this year, it's basically a free-for-all until at least one of them gets back. And I guess it's temporary because once Ekblad and Montour get back, you're going to be fine on your right side. I'm assuming Mahara is going to be there when all said and done. But it's something I have to keep an eye out for because if you're going 20 to 30 games with it, then these are very important 20 to 30 games where you're going to be patching it. And last year, the defense had its moments, but in the playoffs, it was really, really good. So it's something that I I think you have to keep an eye on because of the injuries, but also, as I said, just something we noticed last year that became a sticking point because we had asked repeatedly that the defense pairs be changed and they only changed when they had to be. So Good on asking Paul Marie. Good on asking Paul Maurice when when they get back because that's something I yeah. want to hear about. No, I remember last year that was also why uh, Casey Fitzgerald could never get into the lineup because and they said they only people yelled and screamed about that too, and we were we were a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. And it was the handedness concern, and it is definitely worth asking about now. Uh, in terms of the tenor of the group and the tenor of what Paul Maurice is talking about, he ran another hard training camp. I'm interested because of the way he talked during the playoffs in a very philosophical sense about where this team is and what they were achieving. What is the big lesson he's trying to impart on the team for this year? Because last year it was about teaching them how to do the things they ended up doing in the playoffs, but not during the regular season. And now I think from my vantage point, it's knowing that it's going to be just as hard, if not harder to do that again. Does that make sense? What do you think the message from Paul Maurice is, the overarching message to the team when it comes to what he feels they're going to go through this year? I think it's a continuation of last year. Uh, I think it's really trying to mold a team into obviously one that will be a formidable opponent in the playoffs, but to carry that throughout the year. I I actually kind of asked Paul Maurice a similar question. I think it was yesterday. Um, Just kind of I think the way I phrased it was, do you expect the team to continue in the regular season performing the way they did during the playoffs in terms of style of play? And he kind of gave a two-sided answer because while the answer is yes, you do want to continue, obviously, to play that very aggressive, overbearing style. You you can't play playoff intensity in the regular season. It doesn't work. You will be, you know, gassed out by Christmas. So there's a middle ground that has to be found there. And I And I just, if this is answering your question... That's kind of where the team is going to hope to find a comfort zone during the regular season. They now have the knowledge and experience of knowing exactly what it takes to get to where they want to go. Everybody that was there last year, even though they didn't win the Stanley Cup, they all know what it's going to take at this point. Now it's a matter of having the season, maintaining a season rather. So obviously getting into the playoffs, that's all you're going to hear about. That's the main thing. Get in and then you worry about it afterwards. 
But I think now it's a preparation thing. They all know what they learned last year. They, the systems are all down. Now it's a matter of perfecting and getting yourself to that point where when the playoffs start, you can really, I mean, almost turn a switch like you did last year. I, I think that's really the goal. Um, but in terms of a message, I don't know if there's a new message. I think it's more of a continuation of just kind of staying on that path that they started last year. It's fascinating because they always talked about how they played playoff hockey from January on because they dug themselves so big a hole. And I think their goal, and it's what I've been saying, I said it on the podcast, I've said it on various social media platforms and to myself is basically, I think they want to be in the Tampa role, which is, you know, don't care how many points we get, as long as we're in, it doesn't matter. We know that people are going to be afraid of us if they draw us in the playoffs because of our track record and the postseason last year shows they now have a track record. So it's a matter of how they can strike that balance. But to me, I think part of it also comes down to like last off uh, regular season, they were preposterously unlucky. And, and I know we talked about this a bunch in terms of, you know, scoring below expected in terms of just it feeling like you're getting a 40 shot game. The other team's got 20 and you lose four to two, you know, part of me feels like they're just going to have a rebalancing of some luck. So maybe it won't be quite as difficult in that sense. And also, I just think they're deeper than they were a year ago in so many different areas that helps. And there's not as much overarching change. But where do you get the sense from the team in terms of where they think they have to be in terms of their level? I mean, last year you had some incredible individual seasons. Don't know if that's repeatable, but just as a collective, to be at the point where they don't have to scramble the way they did from January 1st to April, whatever it was, to get in because I don't think they want to go through that again. No, I, I mean, there was a lot of factors that played into the way last year went, whether it was, you know, guys getting hurt, guys getting sick, the, their schedule, which had them on the road for two weeks, home for a day, then they're back in the road for 10 days. It was, it was pretty crazy. Uh, just kind of the hurricane of, of a shitstorm that they had to, pardon my language, that they had to endure uh, the first half of last season. But yeah, I, I don't know if there's like a philosophy that you're going to follow for, for in terms of like, you just want to get in and then you know that you're good enough. Cause I think this is a team based on how uh, inconsistent, not inconsistent, but just how crazy fluctuating up and down, just, you know, what a wild year they had last year. I, I think this time around, just have a season, right? Go out there, play, play the way that you want to play. Don't have to worry about, you know, all these different variables into your, you know, in, getting into your result. It's it's not it's not a matter of being a 130 point team. Like obviously that would be awesome if they could go out and have another year like that again, and that would be great. I think you know again once you get into the playoffs, this is a team that knows, like you said, they know now what they're capable of. I think health is going to be the biggest thing, Matt. I really do. I, I think as long as they've got got they've got bodies, they've probably, I mean, you just alluded to it. They probably got the deepest forward group in the NHL. I think it's at least in, they're in the conversation. There's an argument to be had that they, their forward group when they're healthy is as deep as anybody. And then, you know, depending on how they come out of the next two plus months, once they're at full strength, who knows if this defensive unit holds up and then Ekblad and Montour come back. I, I, it just comes down to, again, just working it in my head. If Sergey Borovsky holds up, what is going to stop this team? I'm not saying they're I'm not saying they're going to be a Stanley Cup champion or anything, but just in terms of the good teams in the NHL, the contending teams in the NHL, why wouldn't the Panthers be right there with anybody? It's 
just looking at what they have on paper, knowing what they can do after last season, it just, it just makes sense. So it seems that you are not one of the people who has them lower down the Atlantic division standings. <laughs> no, I, I think just based off of the roster that they've put together, as long as Sergey, as long as the goaltending holds up, that's kind of been my caveat for the last you know month or so. As long as the goaltending holds up, there is nothing that is going to hold this team down. I, I don't think they're going to go out there and give up four or five goals because they don't have Aaron Eckblad and Brendan Montour in the lineup. I think they might not score as much. It might not be as fluid. His power play might not be as lethal right off the bat. But this is a team that's so deep with their forward ranks. It's, yeah, I, I do. I think they're going to be a top three team in the division. You know, probably two or three. I think Toronto may run away with it. Um, I think they will be a top three th- team in the division. And then when the playoffs start, you know, all bets are off. I actually 100% agree with you because if I had to, I didn't do formal predictions, but I said third was probably where I would have them fall. And I also have Toronto running away with their Atlantic in the regular season because they're a really good regular season team. Again, regular season team, as we learned in the playoffs last year, what you're good at in the regular season doesn't really matter all that much, does it? Well, two um, years ago also when the Panthers Well, the two years struggling. ago, well, sure, sure as heck for that. Uh, watching Andrew Brunette coach the Predators a couple nights ago, seeing some of the things that were going on, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That makes sense. I'm not yeah. rooting against them, obviously, but it's just like, oh, the memories, they're coming back now. It was fascinating. Yeah, that you was watch a, that, that and see Derek game, McKenzie though. hanging over the bench during the timeout. You're like, oh, yeah, I know what this looks like. There was a, there was a lot of familiarities in that Nashville-Tampa game, the right right down to Nashville making a comeback at the end and then Tampa stealing it. And there was, there was a lot of – Panther fans probably watched that game thinking, yeah, this is not that uh, dissimilar to what we're used to. Or in the past, not now. Not all that dissimilar. If there is a team, as you start to wrap this up, that you personally think could challenge Florida for that, you know, back half of the playoffs spot, and there's a lot of contenders in the East this year, uh where do you fall on that uh because i think a lot of people have their their answer and i think i have mine are we talking division or East? i mean just in general because the i I mean i think it's gonna i think the team that could usurp them in the playoffs comes from the atlantic let's be honest not necessarily the metro (laughs) yeah the atlantic could very very well end up being the best division uh in the nhl this year just based off of point total at the end we'll see um yeah See, obviously, a lot of people are bullish on Ottawa uh, for the second straight year. Uh, Buffalo, I think, is just going to be so much fun to watch. And kind of, I feel like a broken record, but it, it just comes down for me to goaltending because I think Buffalo is going to score a lot of goals this year. They're probably going to give up a decent amount. But how many, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to end up being, are they going to be uh, a wild card team? Because, I mean, look, just looking at the Atlanta division, right? Toronto's going to make the playoffs. Florida's going to make the playoffs. Boston and Tampa probably both will make the playoffs. So you're going to get five playoff teams out of the Atlantic division. And if you do, and those four are in, then what happens with Ottawa? What happens with Buffalo? So it, it's fascinating to me just how much talent has kind of come together in one division. I don't think Boston's going to fall off. Just going back to that, I don't think they're going to fall off as much as people think. Um, yeah, it's going to be a gauntlet. Um, and of that gauntlet, I don't know who I – you know, would I pick Buffalo over Ottawa? I'm not sure, but I know in terms of who I want to see, just fun value, uh, give me Buffalo. Uh, that just seems like the team that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I, I think it's I think it's the Sabres. If, again, I didn't do formal predictions, but if I was going to have my eight, I think Buffalo would be the team that gets in. 
That's just me. That's me personally because well, Buffalo is getting in as an eight. Would you have five teams from the Atlantic making it? I I had to, I thought about it and it was if I was going to put it down on paper, it would be five from the Atlantic. I can't see Tampa missing it, even though they don't have Vasilevsky. I I I know the only time they've missed the playoffs recently was when they didn't have Stamkos, and I understand that, but I just I can't see Tampa missing it. And the Bruins are such a defensively solid structured team that even though they have no centers and they do have no centers, that is a problem in the Atlantic division. You need to have centers and the Panthers are preposterously deep in that area. I, I, I just, I, I struggle to see them missing it too. I mean, Jim Montgomery's got his work cut out for him, but this is something that they've been preparing for. And I, again, it's Boston. I, I, if they don't end up okay, I cannot wait to see how it plays out because it'll be fascinating to watch, but they'll, they'll probably be okay. I think they're going to, but the center thing is such a problem. And that's where, and that's why I think Florida is probably okay because not only do they own everybody in the Atlantic division pretty much, I mean, their record against Detroit, Buffalo and Ottawa is insanely good. So until that changes, I have no reason to believe they won't be good against those teams otherwise. And the other thing for the Panthers is obviously They've just got the center depth. Like, yeah, they can run six, seven guys at center and be fine. Like they're without yeah. Sam Bennett and that stinks, but you go, oh, actually they could just put Los Terrain in there and they'll probably be all right for a few games. Well, and even today, Anton Lundell sat out practice or yesterday when you guys are listening to this, but even Wednesday when Anton Lundell sat out practice, oh, no biggie, we've got Sam Reinhardt, we'll slide him to center. It's, that's, that's a good way of building a team. Like they, they started it down the middle and that's how they somehow overcame last year having Barkoff and Bennett out multiple times all season the last question I'll ask you is this in terms of just point production for Barkoff and Kachuk last year Barkoff obviously suffered a little bit because of injuries Matthew Kachuk had an insane season almost won the Hart Trophy and was close where do you think we're talking in just terms of pure offensive production for both of them this year again assuming health assuming health uh I mean Kachuk I think you you think he builds continues to build he's 26 years old there's no reason to think that he's not going to keep getting better so i would think maybe 115 120 if you're you're predicting a franchise point record total like for him i'm predicting him to get better so make of that what you will if he's going to be better better should equal more points so yeah i guess that's what that means i you know it's how can he not get better he's at the age where players continue to grow and improve. There's, again, it's just logically thinking, Mr. Spock, Matthew Kachuk should be better. He should have more points. And yeah, so then that means he'll have a franchise record point season. He should be a Hart Trophy finalist again. And, you know, that's, that's what Bill Zito got in that amazing trade. Uh, for Barkov, if he's healthy, if Barkov plays like around 80 games, he might finally get his first 100-point season. Uh, th- this was kind of a question that I posed on um, on the hockey news recently. Was this will Barkov finally get his first 100 point season? If he plays in the realm of 80 games, then yeah, it's a very real possibility. Especially, do you think two years ago he almost scored 40 goals? He had 39 goals, I believe it was uh, the year they won the President's Trophy. His scoring touch went away last year. I think he only had like 24 goals, if I'm not mistaken, something like that in 60, you know, whatever 60 something games that he played. If he gets his scoring touch back and he stays healthy. Uh, it could be a huge year for Barkov. I'll take him winning the Selkie this year. Now that Bergeron's 
not around anymore. <laughs> I'll, I'll settle for that because I, I saw Selkie winning Barkoff in the playoffs. He didn't have to be offensively incredible. He was good at the other end. Uh, since David, I think everybody knows where he could find you on the artist that is still known as Twitter to me. I'll end this uh, wonderful discussion with an important question. Do you need a blue sky invite code? <laughs> Uh, I, if I do, I will definitely keep that in mind. Uh, yeah, the whole social media thing is it's a mess right now. But yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram as well. Although I'm, you know, it's more pictures of my kids than hockey stuff. It's about 50-50 over there. But yeah, I think I'm on threads also. Uh, and I do post on, I know I'm on threads. What am I saying? And I post all the stories that I post in the hockey news on threads and on X. I, I still call it Twitter. Who calls it X? Like, whatever, you know. As I said, Elon, if you're going to dead name your kids, I'm going to dead name your website. Uh, but I will give you a Blue Sky invite code. It's nice over there. If you need a Blue Sky invite code, you know where you can find me. Thank you, David. Can't wait to see what you, you've got cooked up for us this season. I appreciate it, man. Always enjoy our chats. Take care of yourself, and uh, we'll do it again soon.